unconditional love is total acceptance Mm -hmm. no judgment there so when you align in your practice the moment you close your eyes and you stop giving a shit about what your mind is thinking saying concluding doing and you bring all of your loving awareness your through your interest which is your currency as a human being you always have the power to place your focus where you choose you are saying with your one-pointedness it is my desire to know myself, my true self in this moment. Welcome to A Curious Yogi Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby, here to illuminate your practice as we discover what it means to walk the yogi's path. Together with wise friends and awakening teachers, we uncover the answers to our greatest questions. I'm so delighted you're here. Now let's get curious. Hey, curious listeners, curious yogis. I'll start today with some gratitude. A big, big heartfelt thanks to those of you listening, sharing your feedback, staying connected, and leaving reviews. I honestly appreciate it all. And I find great inspiration for my own sadhana, by knowing that there are others out there who place high value in using the practices and wisdom of yoga and meditation to find wholeness and happiness, not only for yourselves, but for this whole planet and everyone on it, where there is so much suffering and disconnectedness. So before I introduce this week's special guest, I'd like to encourage you to continue with your spiritual discovery and to continue reaching out and sharing. I'm really honored to share this podcast with you and thankful to have you along on the journey. So this week's guest is one of my very best friends and satsang sisters, Devin Pipers. Devin is a teacher and blogger for WithinMeditation.com. She also works with companies via wellness workshops, meditation sessions, and mindful communication coaching. She is a featured voice for Hyperice's meditation training device, Core, as well as a senior instructor on the Core app, HelloCore.com. Meditation is Devin's passion and purpose. A meditator since 2002, the practice has been deeply transformative for her. After devoting four years to the study and practice of meditation under the guidance of a master teacher in the Indian Himalayas, which is where Devin and I first connected, Devin's sessions incorporate multiple traditions and techniques, including mindfulness, breath work, mantra, gratitude practice, and loving kindness. Trust me when I say Devin is masterful at translating all that she's learned into simple terms, making her classes appropriate for first-time meditators as well as experts. No matter what your experience level, her approach effectively reduces stress and promotes well-being. This episode is a little longer, but honestly, Devin and I could have gone on for hours, but I really hope you enjoy our exploration and our discovery into what is self-inquiry, who are we, and why are we here. Such a special episode. Delighted to share. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, Devin. I'm so excited to have you back on Curious Yogi Podcast. 
Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, you were on the show way back in season one when I first started doing this podcast project. And I knew from the beginning you were somebody that I wanted to have back on the show. One, because you're one of my favorite humans in the world. But two, (laughs) because you're so wise. You're a brilliant meditation teacher, a brilliant meditator, just someone who I feel really embodies the teachings and you live them in such a dedicated way on a personal level and the way that you share them with others. So I'm so happy to have you back. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I love you so much. Yeah, it's great. And just before we started recording, we were kind of talking about how, um, you know, we have this shared connection, this shared relationship or understanding of meditation, of what it means to be on this path of spiritual inquiry. And that's because we have our shared teacher, our shared guru, and we really live the principles under the same tradition of Advait Vedant. And one of the main sort of techniques or concepts in Advait Vedan is that of self-inquiry and I really set out for season one or season two of this show to explore self-inquiry and I have really realized like I haven't talked about it that much or interviewed anybody about it that much I thought that could be a great starting point for us and our conversation Mm -hmm. of what is self-inquiry what is this practice of asking ourselves and exploring who am I yeah, such a brilliant question, such a big question, and and such an, a relatable question, I think, because, you know, even normal human beings, all normal human beings, as they grow, as they age, as they evolve from, from child to teenager, that's when the, when the teenager emerges, it's like, who am I? Who do I want to be? How do I express who I am? How do I show my uniqueness? How come I feel you know, connected, but also special or different in some way, you know, and what is, so it's like, it's something that everyone in the world, I think, can relate to. And then there's the seekers or the jigasus, the inquirers, like you and me, (laughs) when I got into my um, early to late 20s and started to have my Saturn return, where I was kind of like, what is, what is the purpose of life? And like, who am I in relation to that huge purpose you know what is my legacy in this lifetime what do I want to leave behind what is the mark that I'm going to make but I couldn't answer any of those questions until I really knew who I was and so I started asking questions like if I'm just supposed to eat sleep fuck shit and die (laughs) how, how am I different than a donkey you know it's like well, no, we should throw work into that because we know donkeys work and so do human beings. It's like, that seemed pretty unfulfilling to me that as a human being, if those were my main activities, I could be equated to a beast of burden. Because as human beings, we have this really just singular capacity to question the purpose of why we're here in a way that we, to this to at this point in time anyway, that we're not aware that any other creatures on this earth question in that way. You know, a dog is pretty content to be a dog and knows how to do that really well. And they're really present in their identity as a dog, but a human being, 
We are blessed and cursed with this existential crisis. So as a human being, I was going through that existential crisis. How am I, how is a human's life different and unique and more special than any other creature on this earth? And what is the purpose of the gift of this incarnation? And I was looking around and just nobody had an answer to that because it's not a question that human beings typically ask. You know, everyone in my life would say, just check the happy boxes. You know, if you get if you get married to a good guy, if you have a house, if you have a, a, a great job and you're quote unquote successful, if you check all those boxes, you'll be happy. Try checking those boxes and was looking around for the happiness. And I never felt so empty in my whole life when I felt that I had failed to achieve what other human beings allegedly were achieving, right? The happiness quotient with checking all those boxes. And I thought, I'm broken. What's wrong with me? There's something missing here. Why am I looking around and all these other human beings are satisfied by checking those boxes seemingly, or at least acting like they are on social media? <laughs> and so it's like, what's wrong with me? I must be innately flawed in some way. And then when I came to India for the first time and met Swamiji, you know, he was, uh, he was the first one who told me, you're not broken. There's nothing missing from you. You have extra awareness. And that extra level of subtle awareness is causing this suffering. And this suffering, far from being a curse, is a blessing. It's a divine gift. And the purpose of this suffering, this discomfort, this viragya or disillusionment that you feel when you're in the world as a worldly being, as a form, as a person, that viragya, that discomfort is waking you up. Just like um, the fear in a nightmare is waking you up to get out of that nightmare, right? So it, uh, he completely reframed it for me. He made me understand that I wasn't broken, that I wasn't lost, that I could never be. And so that's when I really started the process of, of real self-inquiry, when I started to learn what the definition of self is. So we haven't answered that question yet, but what about you? How did you get into self-inquiry? Yeah, I think for me, it's the same. And I loved when right at the beginning, when you were talking about how, you know, when we're younger we ask ourselves who am i because we all have that question and then because of the world which we live in where everybody believes i am i as an individual that then the world says well you are bobby well you have yeah. these skills you have these talents you should focus there and then so that purest self-inquiry which is there since the beginning it gets covered up so so yeah quickly as the person is developing in the world and something that's so interesting even about doing this podcast and speaking to so many people that that thread of questioning is there within so many people and we are those people that have that question those rare beings that ask again and again that have that divine uneasiness like you said mm. it's so, such a thread because the being inside wants to recognize its own being. And for me, I had such a desire for freedom that was like burning inside of me. And I feel like when I look back on my younger years, you know, like you said, when this, the Saturn return 
actually mm-hmm. when my Saturn returned I also arrived in in India so that was like my time but before that I was seeking freedom on the most relative field I was moving different places I was switching different jobs switching different yes. boyfriends just just seeking like so for the lowest hanging fruit like I want to be free I want to be free because there is that being inside that is free but because of those mental impressions and conditions that the world puts onto the free being there is like you said that feeling of like well why can't I feel free why can't Mm -hmm. what's wrong with me and that Mm -hmm. feeling of what's wrong with me just led me more and more and more to not only seek more and more but get down and down more and more that I got to a point of like real desperation in my search like like I've I've tried everything on the relative level and still I'm so unhappy so what is so what is that inside of me that is unhappy and I can relate to you exactly when I came to India and for the first time in the presence of an enlightened being who said, not only are you not flawed, but you are me, you are the Mm -hmm. guru, you are that being that is ever free, that has never been bound. And that like revelation of like, pure free forever me was like, just like a heart opening of like, finally, finally. And then I think, you know, it's such a rare gift that we get to have that experience of being with an enlightened being but I also just love the teaching or the idea of self-inquiry because we don't need to have a guru to to not only ask ourselves who am I but to get to the answer of who am I and Mm -hmm. I think yeah like I don't know because it's like you ask the question who am I and then there comes like you go swing way the other side but then how do we get back to who am I? How do we find the answer? Like Nisargadatta, I love the book. I am that. He gives mm-hmm. the answer in the title of the mm-hmm. book. You know? Yeah. Or in the Yoga Sutras, where it's like the first, you know, in Patanjali, in the first, you know, the answer is right there <laughs> in the first and second and third sutra. It's like the answer is available, it's, yeah. it's readily accessible. But digging that truth, Mm. that's 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 really the uh, the life's work but before we move on to answering that question I just want to take for the sake of realness for the sake of anyone who's listening to this who is in that state of suffering or viragya I just want to expose myself a little bit more in case it helps or inspires or comforts someone else who's listening to this now So like, you know, I totally related to what you said when you said, when you were saying, um, I just practiced freedom on the level of a human being, because that's, that's all we knew was how to be a human being. That was what we were taught to, to, to believe ourselves to be. And for me, it was like, I was so frustrated in in my twenties because I was like, I'm a happy person. That's how I identified was like, I'm, I'm an intelligent, pretty optimistic uh, very privileged, um, educated, you know, driven uh, person. Like I, I'm a happy person generally. So why can't I stabilize this happiness? Why can't I have happiness all the time, every day? And it was so elusive. And I was so frustrated by that because I thought if that's my nature, 
why can't I live in alignment with my nature? I say that I don't want suffering. And yet here I am again. So I just didn't know how to break the cycle. And I was meditating for 10 years before I met Swamiji, before I met our guru. But I didn't have anyone to tell me that when you close your eyes, what you're experiencing is you. Hmm. And that revelation, when I close my eyes, what I see is not nothing. This is me, pure, free, forever me. That revelation cracked me out of believing myself to be the individual, the human being, the person doing the meditation. Because essentially what I've been practicing up until that moment was strengthening my ego. <laughs> okay, I'm going to sit and I'm going to do 10 hours of meditation at this, you know, and I'm the one doing it. And it's like, if I have a bad meditation, it's because I'm bad or I wasn't focused or I wasn't present enough. You know, it was like all through the lens of that dual duality and judgment and criticism of a human's mind. So it was, it was radical to meet someone who could give me the perspective, an enlightened perspective, which of course is very hard to find, that could frame my practice in a way that made me see the happiness that you seek will never be on the level of the experience. Because the experience will always shift and it'll always change. As long as our eyes are open, as long as we're embodied and living, I'm going to have good days and shitty days. I'm going to have, I'm going to have dreams and I'm going to have successes and also failures. I'm going to have losses and gains. So that duality will always be the reality of the changing field. That's inescapable. So my frustration is, as, a, as a young woman was really like, I want this to be unchanging, but why isn't it unchanging? And if you're feeling that frustration or that sense of disillusionment, it's not because you're wrong. It's not because you're crazy or wrong for wanting it. It's because that extra level of awareness that you haven't yet remembered or stepped into fully is urging you, oh yeah, I desire unchanging because my nature, my true self is unchanging. I desire love everlasting and unconditional because my true nature is everlasting, unconditional love. I hate death. I want to be forever alive and for everyone I love to be forever alive and well, because my nature is indestructible, eternal and blissful. So there, there's a very strong foundation for the longing within a human being. Where, and, and the frustration that comes from that longing cannot be fulfilled in the world, but it's perfect in its design once we see that that suffering is waking us up. And so the self-inquiry to get back to, you know, who am I? It was about not answering the question of who am I as a human being? Because the most interesting thing to me when, we, when I first came to India anyway... I was still in my ego. I was still like intellectually rooted and I was arrogant. And I was like, okay, if the answer's here in these scriptures from 2,500 years ago, I'm going to read all the scriptures and I'm going to make sure I just learn it because that's the way I was taught to learn as a human being. And then I'm reading these scriptures and I'm learning, oh my God, for the last 3,000 years, probably forever since humans have been on the earth, 
the mind of a human being has always been the same. Mm. The functioning of a human being has always been the same. The experience of a human being emotionally, physically, mentally has always been the same. And it was such a trip to read about, you know, the ego, the ahankar, the buddhi, the intellect and, and, and the chitta, the mind space and like the functionality of the, um, the architecture of the inner imperceivable world of our human minds laid out in a book from like 2,600 years ago. It was a trip mm -hmm. to see myself mm -hmm. modern, you know, reflected in that time. And then I realized, ah, people will always be the same. What this is about answering this question is not who am I as a person, but who is that me? Who is that I? What is the self when I reflexively refer to myself? So that was the answer that only Swamiji revealed as far as mm -hmm. I'm concerned. Yeah. What yeah. And, well, when you were speaking, it made me also think of when we're asking, who am I, who am I from that mental state, which like you said, for time immemorial, the human mechanism has been very similar, but when yeah. we can take the lens out through the practice of meditation and even ask who is the one who is asking who am I yes like, like you said it's it's like that like I love this analogy of like how a volcano erupts like how the tectonic plates underneath the ground it's like a subtle subtle shift it's just like yep. and then yep. the whole world changes and yep. I find that like in the meditation practice when when we expand our awareness to, like you said, that unchanging space inside that that ever-present sense of ourselves that is is avoids death because it is immortal. When we mm -hmm. when we ask the question from there, who am I? Who is this being? Then it's it almost it doesn't negate the mind and the being it almost just absorbs it because when we can mm. ask who am i as that unchanging being from there we can know i am also bobby i'm also this person and this whole grand story and experiences yeah. that have you know and i see you reflected in front of me but yet there's this kind of subtle power in pulling the lens out and when you were speaking, I was just really thinking of how just getting that little key into the doorway of the self of shifting the perspective of who is the one who is asking. Oh, you just gave me chills because I was literally, I think we have a psychic connection in this moment because <laughs> I was literally thinking, I say this sometimes in my classes, but I, I say what I say because it makes sense to me. To me, the I am, or the I, I alone, the I that we each use to reflexively refer to ourselves, that's the same I. Devin didn't know that at the time. But through the meditation practice, uh, what I've discovered is that that I, I am, the reason that the masters like Nisargadatta and others always direct us back to the I am through our meditation practice, through our self-inquiry, is because the I am, like you said, is a doorway that swings in two directions. When we unlock it, it, most of us know it swings into the world of the manifest of form. I am Bobby, I am Devin. And everything that comes along with that 
identification with the mechanisms of Bobby or Devin or the circumstances that are unique or particular to each of us. So that's the I am that we most human beings know and, and believe that they are. But what they don't recognize is that the door also opens inward, we could say, <laughs> into the realm of the unmanifest. It's not just form. It's formless too. It's not just mortal. It's also divine. And it includes everything in between. Um, and it is the origin of those apparent polarities, in fact, you know, allowing that sense of duality to exist. So what I love about the I am is that it's truly the gateway to the discovery of the true nature of yourself, which is why I believe so many masters to keep it simple for students and accessible, say, just keep going back to I am study the nature of I am. And every time we close our eyes, you know, you and I, if we close our eyes right now, we're, ha we're in the exact same experience, not connected by that experience, like that we're two separate forms having, you know, uh, a shared experience, like we're watching a movie on Zoom or something. No, when I close my eyes and you close your eyes, we are literally the same. We are one in a moment. So with the eyes open, there's always division and separation and duality. And the moment we close our eyes, and this was pretty radical, I think of Swamiji's teachings as well. He said, meditation doesn't take time. Close the eyes and you've arrived. You've arrived. You're thinking with your mind, this needs to take time. I have to be meditating for a certain amount of minutes. I have to have studied for a certain number of years. I have to be educated in all of the yoga sutras and read all these books. No, the moment you close your eyes, you're immersed in the I, in the I am, in the, in the awareness and the beingness that's already fully present. You're in that state that is not waking state that is not dream state, that is not deep sleep state. It's something in between the fourth state, right? So um, yeah, anyway, just, yeah, you just blew my mind with the door. <laughs> when, you were, when you were speaking also, I love what you said. I was thinking of how Muji describes that space as the isness. Yeah, because the it's isness. Because the space, and even one of my students, she re repeatedly, like, she's very... Um, honest and puts it out there that how much the the mind wants to resist that or wants to intellectualize yeah. it or wants to get there on a mental level but like you said like this we can't get there on a mental level because yeah. the space behind the closed eyes like you said so beautifully is is that one space it's the basis of all beings yeah. of all thoughts so our mind, which is so personalized and subjective, can never get there. Right. And and it's a hard concept to chew on, but yet we have to kind of chew on it to yeah. allow it to kind of dissolve. But it's, it's yeah. It's an unlearning, mm -hmm. right? And the mind wants to learn how to meditate, how to, how as the mind thinks, because the human being has been trained to associate with the mind, and to learn and to know knowledge, we, we attribute with the mind and the thinking. So we think if I'm going to have knowledge and meditation, how do I let my mind participate? And that's, that's a normal common misconception, but it, it, you, the mind cannot know 
its own source. And there are so many examples of this in the scriptures, like that, that would be asking the, you know, the um, tree to describe the acorn from which it grew. Impossible, right? What acorn? There's just a tree here. I don't know what you're talking about. So it's like, but I like to think of it as awareness, knowing awareness. I often think of it as, because it helps my mind to have touchstone uh, teachings or images or concepts only to alleviate the doubt or the resistance of my mind. I use the teachings of meditation to allow me to relax my mind enough to ignore my mind, essentially. <laughs> so when I do think about it, I think about taking a piece of blank paper and the paper is one. But if I crease that paper and I fold it in half upon itself, then the paper is knowing itself. The paper is having an experience of itself in a way that it hasn't when it's folded. And so for me, it's like awareness is knowing awareness in that space of isness or being when we first close the eyes. It doesn't require thinking. It doesn't require memory or learning. It does require a lot of trust that your, your experience is what it seems to be, which can be very hard for the doubtful mind that's kind of chattering and saying, this is nothing, this is emptiness, this is boring, this is dark, I should just think about something and make this juicy, right, to cover up that space and obscure it again. But to keep it free, you know, can we just bring all of our interest into what the mind says is nothing? That's what our teacher did, that's what Swamiji did beautifully. He would warn us not to be deceived by our lying mind. He would say, your, your mind is saying this is nothing. I should explore, you know, I should create an emotion or an experience of ecstasy to make this meaningful somehow. But he would say, no, no, be really, really alert. Be really, really interested in the nature of that space because this is yourself. So when you're interested, you're aware. But the other thing is, what is the energy of awareness? To me, I often say this too, to my students, awareness, the energy of awareness is acceptance. Acceptance is not liking or liking or disliking. Acceptance is just allowing this to be exactly as it is right now and leaving the liking and the disliking to the side. So to me, acceptance is in alignment with unconditional love, not human love, right? Our idea of like the duality of like there's love and then the opposite of love might be hate. I would argue that it's not. I would say indifference is probably the opposite, but we're not talking duality. <laughs> but unconditional love is total acceptance. Mm -hmm. No judgment there. So when you align in your practice, the moment you close your eyes and you stop giving a shit about what your mind is thinking, saying, concluding, doing, and you bring all of your loving awareness your, through your interest, which is your currency as a human being, you always have the power to place your focus where you choose. You are saying with your one-pointedness, it is my desire to know myself, my true self in this moment. And that desire is reflected through all of my interest, my loving awareness merging with that that the mind calls nothing, with, with that which the mind cannot perceive. Mm -hmm. And what do we discover when we tune into that space in front of our closed eyes? 
Yeah, that's your, I'm asking you. <laughs> well, I'm the you host said now. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Flip it back. No, well, I actually got spaced out for a minute there, but I was like, yes, to a couple of things that you said about when we dip into that space of meditation and we stop giving a shit about what our mind is doing. I yeah. thought of that. I don't know if it was Swamiji or maybe I read it somewhere else of when we are observing our mind and experiences in the seat of meditation to uh, treat our that being awareness as that mother-like energy where the thoughts, yes. the experiences, they are like, an unruly child they go any which way they want but we don't we don't punish that playful child we just gently guide like you said the awareness the attention back to the space and just like a loving mother embraces the child we just love and accept anything that comes up in that space and in that acceptance that is like where the true freedom lies because in, yes. when we know that space, then like you said before, whether it's gain or loss, whether we're experiencing joy or suffering, because we will all experience the spectrum of duality, Yes, there is that anchorage when we know who we are. We can move through all of the life experiences with so much more clarity and resilience, if you will. Yes. And yeah. one other thing, when you were talking about shining that loving awareness I was thinking of this one time when I asked Swami G about what is that inside of a of me and a human being that wants to feel special that wants to remain the individual that wants to be like but no I'm Bobby and I have like we will have that we all want to be admired and recognized for who we are as the person and he kind of like looked away from me which I was like no don't look away and then he was like the same sun that shines on me shines on you and shines on cow dung thank you very much and I was like <laughs> I was like is he saying that like I'm like cow shit like what the hell but then like you know when I took it away and I chewed on it it's like the awareness shines without preference without yes. judgment without prejudice because it doesn't matter that I am that light of awareness. And if I think that I am a girl, then that means that I'm just so taking myself as that vastness and it's like a vacuum. I'm not like, I'm not like cow dung, but essentially I'm placing myself into that place of duality where there's a guru and there's a lesser and there's some, you know, and just the power in, pulling the awareness to that sun which just radiates like you said loving awareness it's like whoa when when we can close our eyes and tune into that ever shining awareness it's like it's that subtle superpower and then we open our eyes and we know who we are and not only do we know who we are we know who every single being is because we're tapped into that source awareness which is like you said before it's it's ever present ever the same for every being so when I Mm -hmm. see you I don't see you as separate I know you're my own self and in that wow what a world could we live in if we all dipped into that you know amen yeah and it's it's 
it's so important. This is maybe the hardest part when you first start meditating. It's so important to access that sense of trust in something that isn't your mind or your experience of your mind or your body or your feelings. So it's, it's, I've, I continue to hear people saying, but you know, uh, but I wasn't a good meditation because there was just so many thoughts, lots of plans, lots of memories, you know, it's like saying, you know, the, the sky was doing a shitty job today because there were lots of clouds passing through it <laughs> as if the clouds could affect the vast expanseness, the freedom that is the sky. And it's like, no, you're the sky. You have nothing to do with the clouds of thought. Like what, what, it, what's so hard for me to get it across to new students is care less about what you're observing and know yourself as that observer, as that witness. Because what you're observing can't affect you. It can't change you. You know, like prove this to yourself. Swamiji, in one of his um, satsangs, he said, if a thought arises in meditation, don't care. But if it's, if it's annoying you, if you're giving it energy, you might as well make it into a mantra. You know, like, and then he started giving examples like, oh, I have to send that email. 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 He's like, whatever he's like, or uh, he said, it could be something terrible. You have a terrible thought instead of judging yourself or trying to resist it or improve it. I hate you. I wish you were dead. I hate you. I wish you were dead. He's like, he's like, take all the power out of those words. Take all the power out of that thought. Deflate it. It's meaningless without your belief in it. It's meaningless. It ha thought has no power over you. You're the source of thought. Thought is, the mind is borrowing your power, your knowingness, your sense of realness, co-opting that knowledge and that sense of realness for itself, presenting you something like a magician and then, you know, trying to convince you that it's real magic. It's true. Don't be fooled, you know, just mm -hmm. don't care and stay in that freedom. No matter what happens, you know, this is the hardest thing is to become doubtless that that I, that that self, that that aware existence will not be changed. Mm -hmm. And so this is why I think it's really important to do a daily meditation for consistency rather than quantity. This is what I preach. I'm like, I'm not going to tell you you have to meditate, you know, if you don't meditate an hour in the morning and an hour at night, that it doesn't quote work. Like to me, that's bullshit. It's like you, it takes absolutely no time. I could do five minutes of meditation every day, but that is going to be so much more effective than just meditating, you know, for 10 days, every six months at one retreat, because I'm dipping my awareness. I'm immersing my whole sense of knowing into the validation of, oh yeah, I'm pure free forever. Mm -hmm. I'm the ever-present, unchanging, aware existence. And no matter what Devin's mind thinks or body is feeling or emotions are at, I remain the same. And that recognition is where the freedom comes from. That recognition is the liberation. Then it doesn't, you just, you, you just don't, you have zero fucks as to whether you're having a good day or a bad day, whether your body's feeling tired or energized, whether your mind is right racing with thoughts or 
having a blissful, peaceful, open sky moment. It's like all of that is still going to happen and you're going to witness that experience, but nothing is happening to you. Mm-hmm. That's the moksha. That's the liberation. Mm-hmm. It's like that daily dip. It's like putting coins into the karmic bank of like, yes, you know, and I think too, it's interesting, especially being a yoga teacher, so many people and myself in the past included have had this expectation or this ideal of the way in which the meditator should have mm-hmm. an experience. But it's like the in the the being inside, even when we're on our deathbed, and as you know, you work and volunteer in hospice, like when we're on that last breath, like that's the the yogi is there even then and the very last breath especially if every single day leading up to that point where we with the the being withdraws itself and the and the body is discarded like right at that moment you know if we could just each and every Mm -hmm. day put the karmic bank so in that moment that gripping that attachment that we feel as a human being can just release if we can have that experience every single day it's like wow what a power that's it that's it that that's how you break the cycle of samsara that's how you get off the wheel of birth and death and and we know that our guru well he was off the wheel before he left his body for sure but we know that he witnessed his own body falling you know falling to the floor like worn out clothes as Nisargadatta says like leave it behind witness mm-hmm. that too falling mm-hmm. away mm-hmm. nothing happens to you you are that ever-present all permeating unaffected uninvolved indivisible invincible eternal blissful being once you become doubtless about that you're fearless in a sense and and that not in like an arrogant way, but in like a deep, contented, satisfied way where you're not looking outwards for people or experiences or circumstances to fulfill you anymore. Because you know yourself as whole, as mm-hmm. complete. Um, in my 20s, I used to have this crisis of wanting to be everything at once. And like knowing that I didn't have enough years <laughs> in my life to be everything. I was like, I want to be a scuba diver. No, I want to be a mountain climber. No, I want to be an actress. No, I want to be a doctor. No, I want to be an astronaut. And it's like, <laughs> I'd have this crisis, like, but I can't be all these in one life. And, and it would, you know, and I would have like, I would spin out like, what's most important? What do I commit to? And then I realized and a sense of jealousy that like other people were having those experiences and maybe I wanted them. And then I realized through the practice, like, oh my God. It's one awareness. It's one existence. And I'm that. So like everyone is me uploading those experiences into our collective, you know, consciousness. I am enjoying on the level of my absolute self, not as Devin, but I ultimately am enjoying everything. I've done it all. You know, I'm every single being. I'm the, I'm the, bugs and the birds i'm flying i'm running free like a stallion in the woods i'm the richest person in the world i'm the poorest person Mm -hmm. in the world i'm the i'm the prince i'm the pauper i'm the saint i'm the sinner i'm all of it i'm the mountains i'm the stars like i'm getting it all and it's good you Mm -hmm. know so when you when you recognize that oneness you just feel full Mm -hmm. and fearless in a way Mm -hmm. that i think allows you then to come back to your person, to Bobby, to Devin, 
and live fucking fully as that individual because there's no trace of self-consciousness there's no sense of comparison or competition there's no sense of um you know being in the rat race and competing for limited resources because before you die because you're scared of dying there's no sense of like money is the most important thing in the world (laughs) as if (laughs) you know (laughs) so it's like it's like you are completely content and so you can be that person that 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 in the on the world of form more fully more fearlessly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay two things like I'm really I'm really getting lit up here the first thing I was thinking is um you know before you mentioned Viragya and that disillusionment and you know, Swamiji would talk about this two wings of the bird. And I think the other wing of the bird, Vivek, is that power of discernment, which is so powerful, like as not even like in the meditation practice, but like as like a daily litmus test, because the discernment in Mm -hmm. this way is discerning from the unchanging and the changing, the unreal versus the real to look at the thoughts to look at experience to look at the being and say whatever is unchanging is real is fact is truth you know because in the world we say like no this is a fact that one at one time yeah. in his, at one time in history the the earth was flat like that was fact. exactly and then yeah. that was fact everyone knew it and then guess what then that fact changed, you know, yeah. like, and we see it so much that the mind grips onto truth and, and reality in this way that's changing. And so when we can discern between that and then look in the meditation, actually what in the meditation, what in this, this experience of being is unchanging, like just to have that little practice or little tool or like it's almost like a weapon it's so powerful to discern Mm -hmm. unchanging from the changing and you know and in that way then like I myself have found it helps me to be more fully present in those changing experiences because it's a recognition of the impermanence of this human incarnation it's so powerful And I loved when you were speaking about recognizing, you know, that we've been it all, that it's all our experience. And I have a question because for me as like a sensitive person, an individual that feels so um, like compelled or disturbed by the state of the world, like there's Mm -hmm. this feeling inside of me that wants peace in the world. I want every oppressed being to be free to be happy everywhere we look it's like the world is becoming more polarized and people are suffering more and I want to know how like you reconcile like you know that we've we live so fully we experience all this wonderful as if positivity and freedom and all these great qualities but how do you reconcile like those in the world that are suffering how do you reconcile that being inside that feels for those that are not only in war in horrible places but in war with our themselves you know like that for me Mm -hmm. I feel is like such a big question in my life and in my practice is like how do I reconcile this you know it's a it's a really important question uh maybe we should put a trigger warning 
on this episode because what I say, while rooted in experiential knowledge, might not be appetizing or palatable for the dualistic human perception. But first of all, I would acknowledge that compassion is beautiful and necessary and that we're born with it. I've actually done um, research into the science behind compassion. They've done studies on infants and all mammals to prove that it is something that is innate. It's a biological imperative. When we see someone else suffering, there's a desire to alleviate that suffering. Now, even though we're born with it, compassion can diminish if it's not practiced or it can increase. So to me, it's something that we're hardwired to have, not only as a biological imperative, if we take care of each other, there's, we're increasing the odds of our survival, but as a nod or um, an acknowledgement of our oneness, right? So compassion is beautiful and necessary and natural. And staying on the level of the illusion, I'm going to answer on the level of the illusion, and then I'm going to answer on the absolute level, just to mm, ease people into it. <laughs> So staying on the level of the illusion, Devin thinks to herself when she's trying to answer that question that she also has, that you shared beautifully, who am I to say what, what experience people are meant to have in this incarnation? On the level of the illusion, when we talk about the jeev or the ind individual soul, that soul knows exactly what is in store for it. That soul has carefully cultivated and crafted intentionally a particular path in order to have certain experiences that will contribute either to someone's, you know, because we're on the realm of duality here, as soon as the person's embodied, it will contribute to their suffering, or it will contribute in some way to the alleviation of their suffering. But actually, even if it contributes to their suffering, ultimately, it's for the good of the soul waking up and remembering itself. Remember, we talked about viragya, so sometimes the suffering has to get so intense that it becomes unbearable before we turn inward to try and find a different way. You know, why am I here? What's the purpose of being alive? In those moments of despair, sometimes that's when we're open to the answer of that question. So from the perspective of the illusion, who am I to judge what, you know, soul experience is uh, relative or, or not, especially when we think about, if we're zooming out, that we've all lived potentially thousands, millions of, of lives. I have been every character in this play. I have been the murderer and I have been the victim and I have been everything in between. I have been, um, you know, there, there's no role I haven't played. Let's just say that. So who am I to pass judgment on the particular role that is being played out within this Maya? Let's, let's, let's bring that into the mix here. This is not what it seems to be. Um, this is again, trigger warning. The world does not exist on the level of the Maya. So it's like, I, I, I can have compassion and a realized being might sound dispassionate if they say, leave the world, uh, leave saving the world to someone that believes in it, someone that's making it real, you know, because for the realized being, the world does not exist in the way that you defined real. 
Where's the world in deep sleep? Where is your body in deep sleep? Where is time in deep sleep? Where is mind in deep sleep? Where is your age or your gender in deep sleep? Or in meditation sometimes in that fourth state, also those, those things fall away, which is when the change comes, when we realize we're having an experience of conscious deep sleep, but awake, right? So it's like the world is not, quote, real or, or um, uh, true in the way that we perceive it to be, but it's very compelling with our eyes open. And we have to spend most of our waking state lives here. So I would say that, but, you know, there's no right or wrong for the one who is beyond duality. Maybe, you know, I've heard um, realized beings, masters differ with each other in their answers to questions when it comes to the realm of duality. Should I save this life or should I not get involved? I've heard masters on both sides say the opposite answer. And I don't think that either of them are necessarily wrong or right. You know, if they choose to not get involved because they know this illusion is not what it seems to be, that there ultimately is no harm, no destruction, and no death ever, then why should they be concerned if little figures of clay are just being smashed back up into the earth? I don't cry when I, when a child, when I watch a child make, you know, sandcastles and then ruin them. It's the same thing. You know, <laughs> it's like the, the beingness is it's an illusory momentary sense of separation that can equally be dissolved in a moment, but nothing is actually being destroyed. Nothing is actually dying. And, and another being, another master on the other side of it might think, well, actually, if this happens in front of me, I would take action. I would help. I would step in. I would protect or I would save. And they also aren't wrong because they're, you know, acting out a sense of oneness, out a sense of I'm saving myself or helping myself. Do I think that you know, the realized being would choose to get involved in the Maya in a very real way, perhaps. I mean, they're, you know, look at, you know, I can't speak to the level of people's awareness. We simply can't know that by looking because the realized beings appear to function exactly as we all do. But, you know, when you think about people who've changed the world in, in really profound ways, maybe they were living a higher level of awareness. I mean, in, for the greater good, that is, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so it's it's a complicated, it's a really complicated question. I don't think that, that I can give you like a definitive answer. It really depends if I'm staying on the level of form, what would Devin do? I'll give you a completely different answer than if I'm knowing myself as pure free forever, does it have any impact at all? what happens in this world on, on my apparent individual soul or anyone else's or on the level of the one absolute being apparently making itself into multitudes of souls, which also is not actually true, then nothing is happening. It's a, it's an anahota hota. It's a non happening happening. So there's no reason to get wound up or to get tied in knots. When I see this apparent destruction and death playing out, when I'm looking from that perspective of the absolute. And yet, Devin cries. And yet, Devin hopes. 
And yet Devin knows and, and does loving kindness and metta meditations constantly to upload positive, loving, light energy into the collective consciousness with the hope of lightening that burden and that darkness of hatred and duality. So it's like, I can hold two truths at once, you know? Hmm, what do you beautiful. think? Beautiful answer. Yeah, I got a little inspired there when you were speaking because I also, when you were speaking, I remembered that when we are tapped into that beingness and that isness and into the awareness that this whole incarnation is simply that illusion, that Maya, when we then when we come from that space, when we open our eyes and move through the world, because we all have to, there's because I I know when I first came to this meditation this Advait Vedant philosophy I almost got like paralyzed like yeah like I didn't know how to act in the world but the more that I've practiced and you know I have the question then it's always so interesting to come to the as sort of a sense of an answer that when I I know for myself the more and more I've remembered this truth what you just spoke so beautifully of the more I know how to act in the world. And, yes. you know, we all have our purpose in this incarnation, like you said, to learn these lessons, to have these experiences and know our true purpose is to know ourselves as that. Then we can all work to the greater collective or work towards the oneness based on what skills, what story, what conditions we took birth into. So in that sense, it's like, no, I know I can't save the whole world. I also know that the world is an illusion. And yet I know I have certain qualities that can can help yeah. others or can alleviate suffering or can do X, Y, and Z where someone yeah. else has different abilities or skills yeah. or purposes in this, this kind of spark and play of the self. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you nailed it there because what you're describing is absolute freedom. Mm. Everyone then knowing themselves as the one self, the pure free forever self, is free to be as involved or as uninvolved as as they feel suits them. And and, and the cool thing about that freedom, especially for you as such a loving being, like for I, I don't know if your listeners know, but Bobby is incredibly compassionate and she has done a lot of years of work with HIV orphans in India and raising money for their care and for um, supplies for orphanages and just like doing incredible and bringing in incredible positive change and, and affecting the lives of, of so many, so many deserving kids who are underserved there. And yet your freedom from this practice allows you to help in a way that is un um what's the word that is not tinged with projection of helplessness or form or death you can still be there and do the most good for those kids and show up with 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 a full heart of light and love and you know your natural positivity and do the most amount of good but you're not you're not 
per, you're not sort of projecting a sense of form onto them anymore, a sense of form that is pitiable or broken or uh, not wanted or uh, death ridden. You are not perpetrating a subtle kind of violence against them anymore because you see them also as you, as pure free forever. So if anything, I feel like we can't actually be a help to the world until we become the change that we wish to see in the world, just like mm. Gandhi said. This is such a good, great conversation because I really think like uh, going back to Gandhi's quote, like you have to be the change that you wish mm. to see in the world. He didn't say do the change. He didn't say make it, demand the change. He said, be the change. If we just sit with that, that means you have to discover that that real me, that real free, pure, free forever I first within yourself before you can really, really assist the liberation of others. You know, because then you're not you're not seeing them as form and you're not perpetrating that that ignorance in the world. So I think that's key to whatever we choose. Yeah. And I also was remembering a quote from the Sargadatta where he says, I'm totally paraphrasing, but something like yeah. if you want to save the world, you have to remember to be beyond the world in a sense yes. or beyond be beyond saving or kind of, you know, like if we just perpetuate duality and perpetuate, like you said before, talking about the, you know, helplessness of the kids and all yeah. that, like, then we're just, it is a subtle kind of violence. And like, yes. our true power to be in this world is to remember that the whole world comes through. I am not a product of the world. I am the creator, like you said, too, of yes. the, you know, I love the analogy of the canvas no you were talking about I've been all parts I've played all yeah, roles yeah. and like when we know not only am I all the actors I'm the stage I'm the lights I'm yes. the whole the whole yeah. orchestra the whole play comes through me like that's the power then to take whatever steps we need to in the world yeah and when I get really upset which I do sometimes, you know, just with the state of things reflected back to me as they seem to be in that duality and that negativity. Um, my mantra, which I'm sure I got from Swami at one point, is nothing wrong is happening. Divinity is unfolding. Because whether there seems to be just pervasive chaos and death and suffering, I know from that enlightened perspective that it's not what it seems to be, that souls are coming here in their embodied journey to wake up and that we wake up through that suffering and, and that, you know, the moment of death is enlightenment for everyone. You know, everyone will have clarity because, because the shroud of the Maya is removed in that moment and then and then they have an opportunity to choose differently in the next incarnation and so on. And then eventually maybe choose to get off the wheel altogether. But there's no, there's no rush. You know, it's just, it's, a, it's, mm. it's the Leela. It's the divine game. And we all came here to play and we play and we play and we play until we don't want to play anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I just love thinking about in that way that it is an awakening, you know, and that the people listening to this podcast 
are also awakening and we're awakening. And it's just that when we're tapped into this present moment to the being that is there, the awakening, whether it appears, whether the mind says it's a negative awakening or a positive awakening, we know we can reflect to each other and remind each other and be together awakening. And I think it's a perfect point to segue off that in this season, I've asked at the end of each episode, I've asked the guests to leave us not only with a point of wisdom, but rather a point of inquiry. And, you know, I think based on this conversation, kind of the ultimate question we ask or can ask ourselves in our practices, who am I or who mm -hmm. is the one asking who am I? But would you leave us with any other question to contemplate during our sadhana? Well, you took the best one. You know? <laughs> who am I? I mean, that's 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 enough. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, but if we want to go, you know, maybe there's a subcategory of who am I? What is the nature of this I? Maybe I would offer that as a question, because the inquiry happens, the investigation, the research, as our teacher used to say, you know, we're researchers in the field of consciousness every time we close our eyes in meditation. So your research, your curiosity, again, your interest, which is your loving awareness, you want to bring all of that attention to the nature of that I study it, examine it, prove to yourself to become doubtless. The nature of this I is free from change. It has no beginning. It has no end. I can't interrupt it or shut it off. I can't improve it. There's nothing lacking from it. It doesn't have a sense of, of birth or death within it. It has no sense of age, no sense of time. No matter how old I get, my sense of self always remains exactly the same because I'm ageless, timeless. I'm free from all that, right? So it's like examine the nature of that I. Prove to yourself that you are that pure, free, forever, whole, complete, indestructible, you know, self-effulgent, perfect, peaceful being. And then use your life to celebrate. Use your, your individual to celebrate the acknowledgement of who you are by enjoying and and being whoever you want to be from moment to moment yeah the set saying mic drop <laughs> <laughs> yeah right nice I love it that's so beautiful such a great point to end on and just to get like bring us back to relative for a moment sure. if anybody listening they want to meditate with you they want to practice with you is there anything oh. coming up you want to share or, I mean, obviously, I'll yeah. plug your website and everything in the show notes, but anything cool. coming up? Well, aside from my personal website, um, I mean, I'm super, I'm not out there very much. And it's, I, I should do better, but I don't. Um, you can find me on Instagram, Devin Pipers, D-E-V-O-N-P-I-P-A-R-S, or on Facebook. Um, but you can find me at withinmeditation.com. This is kind of one of my home bases for a lot of uh, workshops and mindful living circles for um, studio guided meditations that I teach throughout the week, and also for an upcoming retreat 
that I'll be taking a group of, of meditation, like slash adventurers to Peru um, to explore Machu Picchu this April from April 23rd through the 30th. So if you're curious about, um, you know, having both, have been staying steeped in a practice, but also illuminating how that practice informs your experience in the world. And you feel like maybe you want to come to uh, one of the most beautiful spiritual ancient villages on earth, check it out. It's on the, I'm on within meditation.com. Amazing. I mean, I would be hundred percent going if I was in the area, but yeah, you know, <laughs> sounds amazing. Yeah. I get it. So thank you so much, Dev. I love you oh, so much. I love just like, we could probably make this like a three hour episode. So I Oh just... yeah, I could jam with you all day. It's pretty fun. <laughs> so it's, this it's, is a good it's, it's, you know, it's like jazz. It's like riffing, you know, like with satsang, it's, you know, someone, someone sparks an idea and then you kind of throw more out there and add to the bonfire of freedom and enlightenment. Like, let it burn, baby. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review. It really helps the show reach more people. If you'd like to have your greatest spiritual questions answered on the show, send them to me through social or email. And don't forget to follow on your favorite streaming platforms. Let's stay curious, connected, and keep walking the path together. Music graciously offered by Heidi Herdia Groschler. In oneness and delight, this is Bobby signing off until next time.